Good morning, everybody. My name is Alan, and if you're visiting with us this morning, we're really glad that you're here. We're in the middle of a, of a series of lessons called The Storyteller. And see, what we're doing is we're, we're taking the whole year to go back and look at Jesus again as closely as possible to make sure that we've understood who he is, how he treated people, and what it was that he taught. Like some of you, I've grown up around the church. I'm familiar with the teachings of Jesus, and this, this poses a particular problem in that sometimes I think I know what a parable was teaching because someone told me a long time ago, and so sometimes I read too fast. Sometimes I don't really understand what's going on. And I bet some of you guys are that way too. Now this morning I was asked to talk about the parable of the banquet. You'll find it in Matthew chapter 22. First, first half of the chapter, you'll see it in verses 1 through 14. Now, what I find helpful to understand any passage in Scripture is to look at the context that you find it in. The context will help you to understand what's being taught. If you just read the parable of the banquet and the verses that I gave you, you'll get some of the information, but there's so much more to consider. Actually, Matthew's telling of what's going on here starts earlier in chapter 21. And so we'll try to pick up some of those pieces. Scholars tell us that they think that Jesus actually taught this lesson on Wednesday, April 1st, 33 A.D. And how did they narrow it down? Yes, yeah, seriously, that's what they think. Now, there is some quibbling over the accuracy of some calendars, but the one thing that they all agree is that it happened in the middle of the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. See, he came to town just a few days before he gives this banquet, this parable of the banquet. And he comes in like a rock star. See, he's been out teaching for about three years. His ministry has been public for three years. And so everybody's getting pretty well aware of who he is. And whenever he comes to town, they're all waiting. For generations they've been waiting for God to bring his kingdom back to Israel. And what they could figure out from what the prophets had told them is that you know, part of this would be sending them a king from the line of David. And there was a buzz that was going on. See, this time of year was just before the, uh, the Passover. Anybody here ever go to the motorcycle rally out in Sturgis? I guess that's out in South Dakota? Okay. How big is Sturgis normally? How many people live there this time of year? A couple hundred? I was told just the other day that this is the 75th anniversary of either Harley, I think it's of Harley, I don't know, it might be of the Sturgis Rally itself. They're expecting over a million people to be out there. I don't know how you take a town that small and accommodate a million people. But that's what it was like whenever you showed up in Jerusalem for Passover. See, Jews, it was part of the law. They needed to be there for Passover. And so Jews from all over the world would all come to Jerusalem and the town would swell. And I mean, they'd be thicker than fleas on a hound dog. Well, Jesus comes into town and there is a buzz. And it's a big buzz because there's a lot of people and they're thinking, maybe this is the year. Maybe the kingdom is coming back. Maybe this is the king that we've been told about. He, he's meeting a lot of the things. He's looking like the guy we read about. And they're, thinking, they're getting very hopeful. Now they're understanding what the king was, who the king was, what he would be like, and what the kingdom was about, was, was flawed. But they were nonetheless excited. Now the first thing Jesus did whenever he comes into town is he goes to the temple. Another good move if you're wanting to be the king. But what he does when he gets there is he throws out everybody who's making money off the worship of God. This would include those that were changing money. They had money changers. See, they had a rule of the temple that they couldn't have any engraven images, so you couldn't spend a coin that had somebody's picture on it. So they had a special coin just for the temple. How convenient. Because whenever I came in from Rome or you know wherever in the Roman world, I would have currency like we do that would have people's pictures on there, usually the emperor of whatever country. But you couldn't spend it in the temple. Unless, so you had to go to a money changer. And you know what they did? They didn't give you a very fair exchange rate because they were making money off of it. I'd likewise, if I had hopped the nearest boat from Rome to come to Jerusalem, it's doubtful that I would have brought many livestock with me. No problem. They would sell you a sheep. They would sell you everything and they were making money. Jesus goes down and he throws them out. 
Well, now the big problem with this is, is they aren't independent businessmen. They got business partners known as the chief priests and elders of Israel. You got it. The religious aristocracy. Now they had had about enough of Jesus before he even hit town. Because they figured that he was competition. He wasn't on their side. He didn't get his diploma from them. And he wasn't given the same message. In fact, he seemed to attract crowds that they considered less than desirable. He was the unwashed masses. He was a man of the people. And they feared him. But now they're getting seriously irritable with him. And so they track him down. I believe it happened at the temple. Middle of the week. And see, they're going to come and they want, their agenda is simple. They want to expose Jesus as the fraud that they believe that he is. And so they challenge him on where he gets the authority. Because they were the ones who held the authority and they weren't giving it to him. And so they thought that they could expose that he was a fraud and get people to reject him. And if you know much of the story, Jesus turned the tables on them. And then systematically, in the process of three parables, the parable of the banquet being the final one, and a quote from Isaiah... Jesus ends up exposing them as the real frauds. See, the the chief priests and the elders, they had a problem with Jesus. They were upset. But what they didn't know was that Jesus had a much bigger problem with them that went way further back than their problems with him. Have you ever walked in on an argument? Two people are arguing and you just kind of listen for a minute. And as you listen, you think you know what they're fighting about. For instance, husband and wife are are arguing. The husband's saying, why did you hit me with the baseball bat? You're so mean to me. You might conclude that he's right. Why would a wife hit him? But then you get the backstory, and you find out that he's been taking all their money and spending it on other women. Does it change your view of the wife? It might. See, backstories have a way of helping us understand more fully the argument that's going on. The parable of the banquet gives us exactly that kind of dynamic. Now, to tell you the backstory, why Jesus had this massive problem with the leaders of Israel, I think the easiest and most time-efficient way I can do that is to show it to you in a video. Uh, Chris Weaver, a couple months ago, turned me on to a group called The Bible Project. These guys do everything for free. They do take donations. The last time I talked to you, I showed you one of their videos. I got another one of their videos to show you, and I think it'll help me show you why Jesus had such a problem. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much, and that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right, and this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many. And he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil. But despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be 
The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. Now, I actually stopped that video in half, and the rest of it will pick up here in just a little bit. But this is sort of the backstory of what's going on. You see, Jesus, these guys, the, the chief priests, the elders, the leaders of Israel, all along had agreed to be God's partners. They were supposed to be working with God for the same goals. It's called a covenant. How many times have you, have you heard the phrase old covenant, new covenant? The parable of the banquet is going to address both. See, the Israelites, the reason why Jesus had this big problem with them is they had abandoned the covenant. They had abused the covenant. I don't know, we don't talk about covenants a lot sometimes at weddings. We talk about covenants. Marriage is a covenant relationship. And over and over, if you know much about the Old Testament at all, you know that God compared Israel to being a faithless wife. Over and over again. It was, could you imagine a really good guy, a kind, generous, giving, loving husband who marries a woman who will sleep with anybody that will sleep with her? She treats him bad. She runs around on him. And yet he'll forgive her. And bring her back and say, please change. And he tries to keep the covenant together. He tries to keep the marriage together. And she will be better for a little bit, but then she'll go off and do it again. And he'll bring her back again. And you'll see this cycle over and over and over again. That's the picture of Israel as God's covenant partners in the old covenant. It's not a real pleasant one, is it? It's not a good one. Can you understand why Jesus would be so bothered with these guys? Look at the definition of a covenant. A covenant is a formal relationship between two parties who agree to a set of promises so they can work toward a common goal. Think about this. This is really important. A covenant is a formal relationship between two parties who agree to a set of promises. Hopefully the video helped illustrate that a little bit. And say they work together toward a common goal. So what was God's promise? What was the commitment that he asked Israel for and the common goal they were supposed to share? If you go to Exodus 19, 1 through 6, I believe that's the first time that God talks about his kingdom. And I think you can get the elements of the covenant, the old covenant, from that passage. I've got it in your notes there. God's promise was to make them into a priestly nation. He calls it a holy nation. Now, when we talk about holiness, when we talk about something being holy, don't you normally think that it's something that's better? Something that's maybe morally perfect? Something that's, that's pure? But that's not what the word means. In fact, in the temple, they had utensils that were holy. I don't know how a holy could be, how a, a, a spoon or a fork could be morally perfect or better. The word means to be set aside for a special purpose. See, the the utensils that were used in the temple, in the worship of God, were set aside to only be used in the worship of God. That's why they were holy. They had one purpose. And whenever God made a covenant with Israel, they were to have one purpose. That was to be His nation, a nation of priests. And the commitment that He required from them 
was that they follow him. That they do what he does. That they go where he leads. That he can use them the way that he needs to for the common goal that they would have. And that common goal, he wanted them to represent his character to all the nations. How many of you guys felt like in the Old Testament God was kind of mean? I mean, he, he zapped people for, the, you know, for any reason. He seemed to be really intolerant, right? I used to think that. And then I would read the New Testament and think, I don't know, something about his son coming here. He had a personality overhaul because now all of a sudden he's pretty lenient. He, he tends to work with us a little bit better. Other people think that God was a racist. Some people still call him a racist. In that they think that he prefers Israel that nation, that that group of people over everybody else. As though his plan all along was to create one breed of human, one type of, one genetic race, and the rest he was going to fry for fun. That was never the picture. God was never a racist. His plan for Israel was to go and show the rest of the world who he was so he could get them back. Got to go back just a little bit further in this backstory. What the whole thing is about is a good, kind, loving, generous God who's patient, who created for himself everything that we know and everybody that we know. And they were taken from him. He did not deserve to have his people taken from him. He calls them his children. How many parents in here would be, oh well, easy come, easy go, if someone stole your child? You'd move heaven and earth to get that kid back. Or at least most of the kids. You may have favorites. I'm not sure. (laughs) But God doesn't have favorites. God wanted them all back. And his plan was to have a covenant partnership with Israel for that purpose. And the only way that that purpose was going to be taken care of is if they really bought into the covenant. If they really owned that purpose, if they owned that goal, and if they would actually follow God, then He would use them to bring the rest of the nations to Him. And it wasn't about how good they could be or how much sin was a problem. Do you realize that sin was never an obstacle that God couldn't overcome? God always had a problem, always had a a plan to deal with sin. Even in the Old Testament, he could handle sin. The thing he couldn't overcome, the thing that he could not deal with, was apathy and rebellion. You know what I mean by apathy, right? You just kind of don't care about it as much. It's not as important as other things. God never has been able to deal with apathy or rebellion. Because he will not make you care about something you don't want to care about. And he will not make you do something you don't want to do. Those are the obstacles. And those were the obstacles that kept tripping up Israel over and over and generation after generation. But eventually it came to the point where God said, I've had enough. He finally got tired. He had had enough of Israel's unfaithfulness and misrepresenting him to the rest of the world. So he sent word through Isaiah what he was going to do. If you'll check it out, I'll read it to you here. It's in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Now this is what they call Hebrew poetry. They think that Isaiah is one of the most elevated forms of Hebrew poetry, just the whole book. And sometimes that can make it difficult to read, but I think we can follow this. He says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. The beloved is God. That's what he's talking about. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. But it produced only worthless ones. This word worthless is often translated poison. Get the picture here? God planted a vineyard. He wanted grapes. He did everything to make these grapes go. And he thought he was going to get great grapes. And instead he gets worthless ones. In fact, the kind of grapes that will poison and kill other people if they eat them. He wanted to feed people something good. And his vineyard was only creating something bad and dangerous. Verse 3 says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. So now he's speaking in God's place. So this is God. 
Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than what I've done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge and it'll be consumed. I'll break down its wall and it'll become trampled. It'll become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or honed, but briars and thorns will come up. I'll also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Okay, so again, poetry can sometimes be difficult to understand what's going on here. So I'm going to ask a couple of questions that will help you dial in what God's saying here. First question is, what was God so upset about? You'll find the answer in verses 2 and verses 4. Did you find it yet? He expected good grapes. Instead, he got worthless ones. In fact, poisonous ones. He wanted to feed and nurture the rest of the world. And he chose a people and made a covenant with them. They were his partners. And instead of helping him feed the world and bring blessing to the rest of the world through them, they're poisoning the rest of the world. What were the good grapes that God was expecting from his covenant people? You'll find it in verse 7. Justice and righteousness. See, these grapes that God was looking for out of Israel were behaviors. Justice is about what people deserve. If you're going to be a just person, you would never deprive somebody of something that they had a right to. That's being just. God is like that. He doesn't withhold anybody's rights from them. And he was looking for righteousness. We spent a lot of time this last fall looking at the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus taught there. And the whole thing is about what righteousness really is. What it's like to live, what God requires us to live as citizens of his kingdom. God looked for those things from this group of Israel. And they would have none of it. So what was God going to do to Israel? He was going to remove their protective hedge. You remember Job? The book of Job? Satan says, oh, I, could, I could make Job you know, really fall down. You've put a hedge around him. That's why I can't do anything to him. I think, whenever God says, I'm going to pull down the protective hedge, he's saying, I'm going to get out of Satan's way and let him mess with you. Did that happen to Israel? Oh, buddy. Did it ever. I mean, you read the New Testament, how much problem did they have with demon possession? A lot, right? And the other thing he was going to do is he was going to break down the walls. See, a city in those days could only protect itself and decide who's going to live in this place based on them having a solid wall. They could protect themselves and they could decide who's going to live in there. And God said, I'm going to knock it down. God kept his promise. And he used the Babylonians to do it. He raised up, and this is how angry God was. He raised up another nation. Took the time to raise up a nation and make them particularly good at warfare and march them into Jerusalem and he knocked down the city wall. They knocked down the city wall. Not only that, they destroyed the temple and they burned everything. They killed most of the Jews. The ones they didn't kill, they most, took most of them off into captivity into Babylon. Israel was known as Israel because there were 12 tribes after the exile was over and they came back, they were known as the Jews. Because they were so wiped out, they could only identify two different tribes out of the original twelve. The tribe of Judah and the tribe of Levites, which were the priests. And that's why they're called Jews even today. It's the only tribe that they could even begin to recognize back then. God thoroughly wiped them out. They lost their land. They lost their sovereignty. They lost it all. But the most tragic thing that they lost is they lost their partnership with God. Solomon had built a temple, and it was impressive. But the day they uh, commissioned it, the day that they celebrated it, commemorated it, God showed up. Visibly. I don't know if the whole thing glowed or you know, something came. It doesn't describe what happened. But they saw God's presence enter the temple, and they were, oh, wow. God's keeping his covenant with us. 
He's allowing us to live in his presence. Well, the Babylonians could have never knocked that building down if God was still living there. And remember, they came back out of Babylonian exile and they rebuilt the wall and they rebuilt the temple. The old folks cried because they said it doesn't even come close to the glory of the former one. And I don't think they were talking about the stones because the presence of God never came back. God didn't indwell that temple. The presence of God never entered that temple. The next time God's presence would show up in the temple was when Jesus walked in to bring back his kingdom in a way that they didn't understand. So, I said all that just so I can tell you about the parable of the banquet. Heck of a backstory, isn't it? Do you understand why Jesus is ready for these guys? He exposed them as the frauds because they were still claiming to be the covenant people of God. They were still claiming, if you want to know God, come to get to know us. And they were evangelistic. They would go all over the world to get people to come and be a part of the Jewish nation, a part of the Jewish religion. And Jesus said, you'll cross oceans. And to make a convert, when you do, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. That should be a message for us as churches that get really interested in planting churches more than growing good grapes. That's just a little bit of a sneak peek of where I think Jesus is going to take us in this parable. So now... Jesus starts off with the first parable. The first parable is about the two sons. And he's identifying who these guys are. And he's saying, you're the frauds, not me. You've said that you were God's partners. And you're not. And he says it this way. He says, there was a son who said, I wanted to be a partner. And then said no and went off and did his own thing. And ignored the partnership. There are these other kids over here who said, we don't want to be your partners. And changed their mind. And guess which ones are actually my partners? Guess which ones are actually the kingdom? And he was talking, the first group was Israel. And the leaders that were confronting him, they were the ones that said, yes, we want to be partners of God. But they didn't care about morality at all. They didn't care about acting like God. They didn't care about justice. They didn't care about representing him righteously to the rest of the world. They weren't loving. They were all about rules. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, they never figured that they would ever be acceptable to God. They thought we're just too bad. God would never accept us. And whenever they found out that Jesus wanted to talk to them, they said, you know what? I can give up what I've been doing and I can get on board with this covenant. I can be a part of this. And they changed to be a part of them. So Jesus tells that one to expose who they are. And then he tells the parable of the vineyard. I'm not going to go through every element in the parable of the vineyard, but let me tell you, it looks a lot like Isaiah 5. The one we just read. And you know what? The chief priests and the elders of Israel caught on that he was talking about them. They realized it. And he told them, you're going to not only kill every other prophet that's ever come, you're going to kill me too. And you know what? They bought in on that. And in just a couple of days, they'd get it done. They were furious because he tells the story of Israel in the first part, in the parable of the vineyard, he's telling the story of Israel. But he's not done. He tells the parable of the banquet. And I believe the parable of the banquet tells two stories. He tells the story of Israel again, just like he did in the parable of the banquet, banquet or vineyard. But he casts it as a banquet instead of a vineyard this time. Let me, let's read it. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. This is how he tells their story. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So now it's not about a vineyard. He wants us to think a king whose son is getting married and he's having a big celebration wedding feast. And he's invited some people to come to it. And verse 3 says, And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who've been invited, behold, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. And apparently this is going to be a big shindig. This was the good food. In other, way, in other words, this is the party of the century. Why won't you come? I've got this ready for you. It says, uh, I've done this. Come to the feast. In verse 5, it says, but they paid no attention. That's apathy, folks. This wonderful, wonderful banquet, this wedding feast, a time to celebrate with the king and his son. They're really not 
It's just apathetic. They paid no attention and they went on their way. And you know what was more important to them? It says right here, one went to his own farm, another to his business. Folks, they were worried about their jobs, about their money, about their wives and children and their homes and their vacations, their retirement practice, their new big screen TV. I don't know what that would have looked like circa 180, but they were into it. They didn't care. But there was another group, and he says there in verse 6, that, re, that the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. you got two groups of people here. The apathetic and the rebellious. Those that don't care and those that don't want to. It's the same crowd that you saw in Isaiah 5. He's telling the story again. I would suggest to you that we have in this building, in these chairs right now, amongst you, the same groups. Because I watch you come in here every Sunday. And some of you are absolutely apathetic about the covenant. And others of you are just out and out rebellious. That doesn't define everybody in this room. There's a third category. We're going to look at those two. I just want you to realize it doesn't take us a long time. If you're a good reader, you can sit down on a weekend and read the Old Testament. It covers thousands of years of human history, though. And because we can read it in a short amount of time, we can start thinking, how could they miss it? How could they go to worshiping the Baals after they had seen God part the sea and get them out of Egypt? Well, that took about 40 years to get them through Egypt. Some of the kids that grew up in Israel after that in the promised land didn't see that. They had just heard the stories. We're no better. We're no, we're no different than them. We forget too. I think the reason why Jesus tells two stories with the parable of the banquet is he wants us to get off of our high horses and realize the same thing that happened to Israel can happen and will happen again. It will happen again. In verse verse 7, he says what he's going to do. He's going to burn down their city. And he's going to give the kingdom to somebody else. I'm sorry, did I read that yet? I guess I didn't. Verse 7. But the king was enraged. Okay. Pet peeve. Driving down the Beltline in Alton a couple years ago, and I see this huge billboard that says, God's not mad at you. Ooh, that kind of bothered me. If you're his partner... If you're taking seriously his covenant, that's true. He's not mad at you. Weakness, sin, has never been an obstacle for God. And that is good news. But whenever you trash his covenant, when you claim to be in covenant with him and willfully disobey, or you just get caught up in your own things and they become more important to you than his agenda... I guarantee you God is enraged and angry. I realize I'm not going to win a popularity vote preaching like this. We live in a time and a place where people, I don't know if you notice this or not, but just step back and think about this for a second. Churches compete with one another. They market themselves. They try to differentiate themselves. Denominations do this. These are the distinctives of our denomination. And in our lifetimes, we've watched the emergence of the community church. They don't affiliate necessarily with one particular denomination. But they all market for you to come and be a part of them. And the way that they do this is they try to tell you what you want to hear. And they actually spin it to make you think that God is all about blessing you. That his covenant is, I don't want you to go to hell. So if you'll sign up with me, I'll give you the marriage you always wanted. I'll give you children that you always wanted. I'll heal your hurts. You won't have to struggle with your addictions. And they try to sell it. They compete with one another on this too. I'll tell you that you don't have to be quite as committed as that church will. I'll sell you three pounds of God in a sack. And all you got to do is show up on Sunday and throw a couple bucks in the plate. And so they compete for that. I'm not going to be a part of that crowd. 
And I knew, I've been sweating this lesson out for two weeks. Because I know that some of you are going to be really angry with me. But I hope if you're angry with me, it's because I've told you the truth, not because I've told you what your itchy ears wanted to hear. Because God's going to hold me and Gary and Tim and all the other teachers here responsible for telling you the truth, not what you want to hear. And if you reject God's covenant purposes, if you're wanting to be rebellious and do your own thing, if you think your life is about the money you make and the things you can buy and the things that you can do, and call yourself a Christian, I guarantee you God is angry with you. Just the same way he was angry with the people who did that to him in the old covenant. You see, we got a new covenant. He's offered us a new one. And his thoughts and his feelings and his requirements have not changed. He is the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Look how he he finishes what he says to the chief priests and the elders in verse 7. It says, the king was enraged. And he sent his armies. And he destroyed those murderers. And set their city on fire. Did that happen? Yeah. Not quite 40 years after Jesus said this. You know what God did? He raised up another nation. It wasn't the Babylonians this time. It was the Romans. And whenever they got through with the Jews, they were wiped out. He didn't just, they didn't just go after Jerusalem, guys. They sent two armies, one to the north, one to the south. And they met the middle in Jerusalem. And they tried to kill anybody claiming to be a Jew along the way. They knocked down the wall. They, came, they busted into the city. They destroyed Herod's temple. They burned everything. Including a little item they called the Book of Life. That sound familiar? If you've read Revelation, you hear about the Book of Life. The Book of Life was like what we do now at the county courthouse where it says birthrights and you know, who was birth certificates and who's related to who. The Jews called it a Book of Life and it was about inheritance. That was destroyed too. The destruction of Jerusalem was so thorough that there is no way to know who is genetically related to that group of Jews. That has been lost to history. Their ability to even practice Judaism was totally destroyed because the temple wasn't there so they could no longer practice Old Testament Judaism. Judaism that we have today is not what you read about in the Bible. It's totally different. It's a, I think they call it a rabbinic Judaism. Did God get angry with those who disregarded and abused his covenant? Yes, he did. The wedding feast that he's talking about here, I believe it's a wedding feast that is pictured for us in Revelation. Chapter 21, verses 2. I know a lot of you guys are scared of Revelation. Because if you've tried to read it, it gets a little spooky. There's some imagery in there and some language that can be really confusing. And there's a lot of people that will tell you some really fanciful, scary kind of stuff about what all this means. You want Hamlin's revised cliff notes on this? Revelation is a courtroom drama. It's a courtroom drama where Israel, the unfaithful wife of God, is put on trial, divorced, and executed for her crimes... And then we come to the bride of Christ and Jesus being married and the celebration. You don't have to believe me on that. Read it for yourself. Make up your own mind. But that's what I see in it. And look at Revelation 21 verse 2. There it says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Why a New Jerusalem? Because the old one has been burnt. I saw a New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. He's talking about us. He's talking not about Greater Alton. He's talking about the church. In every church, there are probably members of the church. And in this building, there are only some of us that are members of the church. It doesn't matter what they say in the office. It doesn't matter what role or list of names that you're on or which congregation you have publicly identified with. The church is much bigger. It is not defined by property. It's not defined by what buildings we own. It's defined by who owns us, which covenant we're a part of, which covenant we've bought into. The church is the new Jerusalem. And see, now this is where Jesus is going to switch from telling Israel's story again to telling our story. Now, I want to pick back up the rest of that video. Because I think what they do is they give the picture in a very short amount of time of what the new covenant 
is about. And then I'll come back and finish up the parable of the banquet and see how Jesus describes it. During this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure, somehow. Yeah, they called it the New Covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus, is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who was able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David. And so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who are becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. Okay. So what you've got is you've got the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. God partnered. He had a partnership with Israel. But his plan, because of their apathy and their rebellion was to have a new covenant a new people that would wear his name to accomplish his purposes remember this isn't about how good we can be guys God always had an answer for sin he was always able to transform us beyond our weaknesses that's never been a problem for God and it's not a problem now But apathy and rebellion are the things that God has never been able to overcome and he's never been able to tolerate. It's a deal breaker. Now look how Jesus tells the story of the church in the parable of the banquet. Verse 8. Then he said to the slaves, his slaves, he's back in the story of the the wedding banquet. The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go to the main highways. As many as you you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both good and evil. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is a difficult passage. Do you realize what's being said here? You see, we're the ones... God started with the Israelites. He started with the Jews. And they rejected. So he sent out his messengers to the people who were far away. That's us. And he's gathered all these people over 2,000 years have accepted the invitation to the banquet. And they've shown up. But did you notice that there are two types of people that end up coming in, in accepting the banquet invitation? Did you see what they were? It might surprise you. Verse 10. The two types of people that are responding to the gospel, then and now. One is good, and the other is evil. What that means is, you are sitting in a group of people this morning, surrounded by some good people and some evil people. And I believe that some of the evil people in this room don't think of themselves as evil. That's not their intention. They may not be mean. They may not be cruel. They're just not dressed right. What do you think God is looking for? I mean, here's the message. What Jesus is saying is, there is going to come a day, right now, in every church, there are good and evil people. The parable of the tares is the same message, isn't it? In the kingdom of God, there are real wheat, and then there's weeds that look like wheat, 
And he tells it there that in the end it's going to be the angels that are going to decide who's who. And the ones that are just weeds are going to get burnt up. This is a similar story. Jesus is saying there's going to come a day whenever God's going to inspect all of us who sit in this room week after week and say we're in. We want the covenant. We want to be partners with God. We want to see his goals done. He's going to look us over and he's going to decide if we're actually dressed for this. A few years ago, England, I don't know if you've got any people in this room that are, that are really crazy about England, but they had a prince that got married. William married Kate, right? If you had gotten an invitation to go to that wedding, do you think you would have gone in the clothes that you just changed the oil in your car in? No. Do you think that you would have even gone in just what you're wearing this morning? I believe that you would have probably shown up in the best you had. Now, it may not have been as good as what somebody else could afford, but you would have gone in the best that you had, right? Because to do others otherwise is an absolute insult to the king. Absolutely an insult. It's as though you're saying, I'm doing you a privilege by showing up. So I'll come on my terms, and that should be good enough for you. That's what it's like whenever we come into a covenant relationship with God and we show up at his church that wears his name with his people who claim to be his partners and we come in on our terms. We want to do it our way. I know God says do this, but I don't want to. I'll do that. What's God going to be looking for whenever he comes and he inspects us? According to this parable that came from Jesus, a highly reputable source, he's going to be looking at what we're wearing. What our garments are like. What are those garments that he's looking for? Garments are about behaviors. Look at Revelation 19.8. It says there, It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. What has God always wanted his covenant partners to be? Fruitful. To produce grapes. To dress themselves in justice and righteousness. That's how we're supposed to be dressed. To come here and to claim to be a Christian and not care what justice is. Not care whether or not you treat people in the way that is right. To not accurately represent God's character to the rest of the world is to show up in filthy rags. Isaiah 64 6 says that unrighteous behavior is like filthy rags. What's God going to do to those people that show up that way? They're going to get kicked out. It says out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I believe that He's describing the dominion of darkness. Understand what he's saying is, if you're going to try to take God on his terms, you're here to not go to hell. You're really not that motivated to change how you act so that the world can see him accurately. Your reward is going to be the same reward as the people who never gave a rip. The difference is, many of them will have never known that they had an opportunity. And you will be saying, I was given every opportunity. And I failed to take it seriously. Or, I was a rebel. And I wanted to do it my way. It's a little sobering, isn't it? Okay. If you're with me. I think this is where we go from Jesus telling Israel's story. And then telling the story of the church. To you choosing how he's going to tell your story. Which one of these two is going to be your story? Are you going to be like the Israelites and those that are dressed in filthy rags who did not take seriously the covenant? You see, every week we celebrate that banquet. We don't have any scriptures that I know of that tell us that we have to take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. But we do. And I think it's a good thing that we do. Because we're commemorating the banquet that we've been invited to. And we remind ourselves of some things. We remind ourselves of God's promises, His covenant. 
Check out the similarity between the promises that God makes us in the New Covenant and the ones that he made in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. And the commitments that he asks for in the New Covenant versus the Old. And the goal in the New versus the Old. God's promise in the New Covenant is to make us a priestly nation. You find that in 1 Peter 2. That our commitment is to follow Jesus. And the common goal is to represent the character of God to all the nations. God still wants those that were taken from him unfairly, unjustly. He wants them back. He wants his children back. This is not about you coming here so that you can be blessed. You have been brought into an army of God. A nation with a mission to reflect God's glory and help him get back what was stolen from him. And his purposes are good. It's better to live in his kingdom. I think we get so distracted by what it's like to eat at this banquet, we get so thrilled with how we're being treated that we forget there are people who haven't come in yet. And I think that's a tragedy. And I think it's a form of rejecting the covenant. Look at Paul. See, the the, the Corinthians. There was a church in Corinth. Maybe a couple, actually. And Paul talks to them. He said that their Lord's suppers, their communions, their celebration of the banquet, the wedding banquet, was doing more harm than good. Did you know that when you come in here and you take the Lord's Supper, you can do more harm to yourself than good by taking it? You can do more harm to yourself than good by taking it this morning. You know why I didn't, I asked to put the Lord's Supper at the end of this lesson rather than in the beginning? Because I don't want to see you do it to yourself. What am I talking about? Well, let's look at what Paul talked about and let's see if we can figure it out. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 32. Paul says, Therefore I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after, also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. This cup that you're going to take or not in the next few minutes represents the new covenant. He said it's a new covenant in my blood. The only way that we can be partners with God is based on the sacrifice that Jesus made. That's the only reason why we were invited to this. We have a new covenant and it came by the purchase of his blood. And he says to do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That's why I think it's a great idea to do this every Sunday. Maybe we ought to do it every day. I don't know about you, but I have a temptation to get caught up in the cares of the world and forget the covenant. And we need to be brought back to what that covenant is. So then Paul says here in verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. See why I don't want you to take this routinely? I'm not making these rules up, folks. You read it for yourself. You decide for yourselves whether I'm just full of hooey this morning or whether I'm telling you what God's got to say. But I think I've given you a pretty good argument. I think I've shown you from Scripture. I've given you the backstory. I've taken a little longer this morning than normally what I think I should do on a Sunday morning. But I think this is that important. That you look at it this way. You see, if you take this Lord's Supper this morning in an unworthy manner, you're guilty of the body and blood of Christ. They killed him by claiming that he was a fraud. They claimed he wasn't who he said he was. And when you live a selfish, self-centered, apathetic or rebellious lifestyle and you take the Lord's Supper, you're saying he was a fraud too. I would love to find a different interpretation of what this means. Because this feels like the point of a knife. Maybe a scalpel would be better. Something that's not intended to injure, but something to heal. He says, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. What's he talking about, judging the body rightly? I think it's how we're dressed. 
What are your deeds? How are your behaviors? Y'all are pretty easy to get along with on a Sunday morning. I don't know about after this lesson. But normally, you're pretty easy to get along with. I wonder how many of you change your personality and demeanor starting tomorrow morning. Or later tonight. I just wonder about that sometimes. Because I've seen some of you guys, you're all friendly and happy to be around people. And then I've seen you turn like a snarling dog on the waitress. I've seen you flip off people who cut you off in traffic. Wow. How are you dressed? Are you about kindness and mercy? Do you like giving up your rights so that other people can be blessed? Or are you going to fight for every right you think you have? And we call ourselves Christians. Which means the rest of the world is deciding what they think about Jesus based on how you act at the gas pump. It's true. He says, For he who eats and drinks judgment of himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Look around you. I don't know if he's talking about physical sickness. He might be. I'm pretty sure there's a connection between spiritual weakness and physical weakness, but I'm lost. I couldn't tell you where it is. I'm just not that bright. Do you really think that you're sitting around a crowd of people that are spiritually strong all the time? Or do you see in amongst you right now today people that are spiritually weak and even spiritually asleep? Do you think maybe the reason for that may be that they haven't taken seriously the covenant? That they have not seriously considered their responsibility as partners of God. I tell you what, whenever it started dawning on me the truth of this a couple of years ago, it kind of shook me up. And it took it to another level for me. I am still weak. But I am not nearly as rebellious. And I don't think I'm apathetic at all. I got my issues. I can't stand before you and say, yeah, just imitate me. You'll be fine. <laughs> that wouldn't work out so good. But I can tell you the one that you should imitate, and that's Jesus. And I'm trying to do my best because I want him to get everything that he paid for me out of me. I don't know how he does what he does. I don't know how he's going to use the way I treat my neighbors. I don't know how he's going to use the way I treat my wife whenever I'm in a bad mood and she gets on my last nerve. I don't know how he's going to treat me. All I know is he's right. One day it may cost me my life. And he'll be right. If he wants to use me as a pawn in his chessboard, that's what I'm for. You need to have that same attitude. Because there wasn't a Christian in the first century who didn't understand that. And we are loaded with people who call themselves Christians who are not willing to be used by God as a pawn. They want what they can get out of God, not what they can give. And that is an unworthy way to take the Lord's Supper. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to take communion. If you are trying and weakness is your problem, that's not a problem. I don't care if you struggle with porn. I don't care if you struggle with drinking. I don't care if you struggle with drugs or lying or the rest of it. There is not a problem with sin. Jesus' blood is better than that. And His grace transforms us and teaches us over time how to be qualified partners with God. He will work with you where you are. You don't have to worry about your weakness. But if you don't care... If the main thing on your mind is the money you can accumulate, the house you can buy, the education you can provide yourself or your children, and everything about God and His agenda is secondary to that, you've got a problem. And let me encourage you to do one of two things this morning as we celebrate the banquet. Either repent, that would be option A. Change your mind. Get on board. We used to ask people to get on board with the purposes of, of Greater Alton. We had a vision statement. We asked everybody to buy into it. That may not be the best thing we can ask people to buy into, frankly. 
But I think Jesus commands us to buy into his covenant. To buy into his purposes. In fairness, we came up with those things as a way of trying to focus us on that covenant. I just don't know if we always communicated it that well. Now's the time to change your mind and buy in and allow God to use you where you are. As I've studied the parables out, I've noticed that as Jesus talked, most of the time people did not understand what he was teaching. Have you noticed that? He would draw big crowds. I think they came to see the sideshow. You know, maybe one leg wasn't long enough. You know, something. You know, they, they had a person, they had a friend who had a demon. They, they, something. And they wanted to see the sideshow. And they were completely satisfied to show up and hear a message they didn't really understand or know what to do with and then go home. But there were some people inside that crowd who would approach Jesus later and say, How do I, what does this mean? How do I do this? And as far as I know, he never failed to explain it to the people who were curious, who wanted to know. This morning, some of you are just satisfied. And despite what I say, I could jump up here and throw a fit. And regardless of what I say or do, you're going to be satisfied to hear a message and you'll never ask a question. You'll never go to a small group with a sincerity of heart that says, show me what this means. I don't think I agree. That's a fine thing to say. I mean, I really do invite your skepticism. I'm not put off. I know I'm not the fountain of truth. You know, I don't have the final word. I'm still a work in progress. I'm telling you the best I know. Feel free to disagree. But if you're going to disagree, have a biblical reason for disagreeing. Right? In our attempt to learn how to be good partners of God and covenant with God, we have small groups, discipleship groups. Some of them aren't that small. We're trying to keep them small all the time. And even in those, I watch it week after week, people who come into that and they don't talk. They don't ask. They don't want to know, how do I do this? Can you help me with it? In Jesus' day, I think he used that as a way to see who he should work with. Who was really interested. He said something about pigs and pearls once. Little pigsy pearlsy. Right here this morning. If you're not a part of a small group where you can ask these questions, are you more like the pig? Because a pearl has no value to a pig. Let me encourage you to repent of that. Ask questions. Talk to one another about it. Be in the right crowd. Because I'm telling you, just being baptized does not buy your ticket to heaven. Just coming to church and throwing money in and showing up for all of our events and bringing the things we asked you to bring does not qualify you to be dressed right for this banquet. If anybody has told you that, please let me know. Because I want to deal with them and encourage them to rethink it. As I'm encouraging you to rethink it. I hope that if you're not a part of a small group where you can talk about these things, if you don't have someone who helps you learn how to be a good partner with God, would you write that down as one of your needs? If you're serious about being a partner to God, and about honoring the covenant that he's made with his people, and you don't have those kind of resources, would you make that need known and commit to allowing somebody to help you? I promise you, it's not bad. I mean, I do this every week with a couple of different groups, because I need a lot of help. And I get a lot of help. And it, it helps me in ways I just I, I can't brag on enough. Also, in your small groups, what I'd like for you to do sometime this week, I'd like for you to talk about this lesson, did you or didn't you take the Lord's Supper this morning? And your reasons either way. And I've got in your notes a passage, another parable, from Jesus out of Luke 13. I think they call it the parable of the man looking for fruit. And I'd like for you to read that parable and use that to help inform you some more about what Jesus has got in mind for us. Again, we want to know what he really taught, right? Not just some fluffy religion that's worthless. So let me encourage you to do that. So here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to rethink and repent if you've been either apathetic or rebellious. But if you're not ready to do that, if you're not there yet, please, for your sake, when we pass this, let it pass. I'm telling you, don't take it this morning. I don't care. It isn't about me. I've got to examine me, not you. God's going to look up how I'm dressed too. 
But when we take this, if you're not all in to this covenant, let it go past. Until such time as you can be. Because you do not want to eat and drink condemnation on yourself. You can do more harm by this simple act than you could ever realize. Okay, I think I've gone long enough. I think I've made the point. I'd like to pray. Worship team, if you want to join me, we're going to sing a song that hopefully helps helps us to think about this commitment that we make when we take this. Heavenly Father, we, we do not deserve to be at your banquet. Nothing we've done qualifies us. But by faith in your Son and our surrender to his Lordship, you've allowed us to come in. And Father, some, some of us, the, the best we have to dress in just really isn't very impressive. And you're glad to see them start there. And you'll teach us to dress better. Your word promises us that. But Father, there's some of us here this morning that have lost our concern about your purpose. There's some of us here who are just apathetic. We're more interested in how we're going to pay the bills. What's going to happen to the economy. The next presidential election. uh, What the Supreme Court says we should or can or can't do. We're concerned about everything else more than your covenant. Father, I pray that you'll help us to repent and to change our hearts and our minds and to use this moment to celebrate this banquet and to re-pledge ourselves, to re-celebrate the blood that allows us to be your partners and help us, Father, to dress better. Father, I pray that you'll be with anybody who can't make that covenant pledge to you this morning. Even if they've made it before in the past, I pray, Father, that you'll help them to have the guts to let these emblems pass them by until such time as they can get totally on board with your covenant. Father, I pray that you'll help us to be more like you in every way so that you can get back everything that you deserve. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.